Christian Peterson, and this is New Books in Religion. Welcome and thanks for joining us. I just finished talking with Vincent Gousser and David Palmer about their wonderful new book, The Religious Question in Modern China, which was published by University of Chicago Press in 2011. Social phenomena that some people like to call religion has long shaped Chinese culture. In the 20th century, defining the boundaries of what constitutes religion has been central to the construction of a modern nation. In this far-reaching book, authors Vincent Gousser and David Palmer help us tread the complex field of phenomena where religion is the central question. The question is answered again and again by intellectuals, politicians, and practitioners, each seeking their own objective in classifying particular social activities as religious or not. The authors lead us through the debates revolving around what various practices entailed and if they merit the classification religion, such as athletic practices, lay Buddhist activity, traditional medicine, Confucian movements, self-cultivation, evangelical Christianity, dietary practices, and Falun Gong, among many, many others. Of course, the answer depends on who you asked and when. In this rich book, though, we are offered a detailed analysis of Chinese questions about religion, secularity, and modernity in a global world. We had a long and interesting conversation, so without further ado, here's the interview. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion. Welcome to another episode of New Books in Religion. Uh, today I have the pleasure of speaking with Vincent Gousser and David Palmer about a great new book, The Religious Question in Modern China, which was published with University of Chicago Press in 2011. Before we get into the content of this book, I was hoping you could go, kind of give us a little bit of background on your training, how you got interested in studying Chinese religions, um, and then perhaps you could lead us through kind of how this book project developed. I guess I, I, my interest in Chinese religion began uh, when I was an undergraduate at uh, McGill University in the late 1980s and early 1990s. Um, I was majoring in anthropology and East Asian studies, and um, I did my honors thesis on the Jesuits in China. And, and I had uh, as my advisor, Ken Dean, who is a, a eminent specialist of popular religion, and Taoism in uh, Southeast China, and I guess he kind of planted the seed um, of, uh, uh, of uh, an academic interest in uh, Taoism and Chinese religion. Although I must say that even earlier than that, when I was in high school, um, my good friend um, Elijah Siegler and I, and Elijah and I are currently co-authoring a book, uh, we used to take part in debating tournaments where we would cast uh, the Yi Jing to find arguments for our debates. Um, so I guess, <laughs> I guess, I guess the interest in China and uh, the Chinese religion um, actually goes, it goes pretty far. It's hard to explain why. And, um, uh, after I finished my, um, studies in, uh, my undergraduate studies, I kind of took a turn towards, uh, psychology. I wanted to understand more about what goes on in people's minds um, and um, in preparation for doing um, a graduate study in ethno-psychiatry, I, f- I went to China, and it was there that I first came across the Qigong movement, which ultimately became the subject of my uh, PhD thesis. I went back to Paris, and I studied under Christopher Skipper, um, who uh, specializes in the anthropology and history of Taoism and Chinese religion in general. And that's where I met Vincent Gossard. He was also a student 
of uh, shippers. Uh, he uh, completed his PhD a few years before me. For me, um, what was interesting was that at the time that I was doing my PhD thesis, so this was in the late 1990s, um, at that time, and so I was working on Qigong which, and ultimately Falun Gong, with the whole story was unfolding while I was doing my work. Um, this was obviously a movement that had strong religious overtones, uh, that was clearly a, a religious phenomenon in some way or another. But what was interesting was that really in the field of the study of, of Chinese religion, um, this kind of phenomena really appeared like a, a UFO, you could say, because generally speaking, um, it was still widely considered that religion had disappeared in China or the only relig the only research on religion that you would do now was simply salvage ethnography what remained in Taiwan and Hong Kong even what might have been what was starting to revive in rural China but all of that was really not seen as anything that was relevant in any way whatsoever to the the current and future unfolding of uh, of China's destiny and so it just appeared as bizarre and surprising for everyone in including all the specialists on China, uh, that this Falun Gong um, erupted and became such a big issue, uh, threatened the, uh, the legitimacy of the, uh, of the Chinese state. And suddenly, you know, everybody was like, huh, what's going on? What, what, hey, what, how come this religion is coming? What, what is this anyway? Where is this coming from? How, how could this appear? And it, I think it really created a great... Um, a kind of a commotion in the field of, of Chinese studies in general, and also in the field of the study of Chinese religion, which was really not seen as something that was relevant to contemporary society. It was all for historians and sinologists who worked on um, many dynasties earlier. This was, in a sense, the in, uh, for me anyway, and, and Vincent can tell you how he came, came up with the idea for this book, but... Um, it seemed then that we were really, for everyone, and there was this question about religion in China. Where does religion fit in the Chinese socio-political configuration? Why had it seemingly disappeared and suddenly reappeared? What, um, uh, and, and when we came to those questions, it was clear that there was a whole history of, in a sense, erasing parts of China's heritage reconceptualizing things in certain ways which uh, blinded almost everybody whether they were scholars or Chinese intellectuals or even uh, most people in China which blinded everybody to the, the uh, deep religious structures of traditional Chinese society and the um, pervasiveness of religious dimensions to the modern evolution of Chinese society and to the continued vitality of, uh, of religiosity uh, in contemporary Chinese society. And so, so it really became clear that it's, it was important to really um, uh, sort all of these questions out. And in order to understand what is going on in the religious field in China today, we would really have to go back to the emergence of, um, of uh, modernity in China and see 
how this uh, drama had unfolded over more than a century? Yeah, well, um, I came to the study of Chinese religion by uh, chance or accident, or a combination of both. I was actually uh, studying uh, business administration and uh, doing an MBA, and I started to learn Chinese at the time. And I got into reading stuff, including on Taoism, and I basically fell in love with Taoism. And then I met uh, Christopher Schipper, who was uh, teaching the history of Taoism at uh, École Pratique des Études in Paris. And that was in the uh, 90s, early 90s. And I went to do a PhD with him, and that's how I fell into uh, this field. I'm, I'm an historian, uh, so I'm mostly working with, uh, with texts, uh, but uh, trying to combine uh, reading of text with uh, field observation. Uh, that's not something particularly original. I mean, many of us in the field of Chinese religion do that, uh, but it's certainly um, a certain approach doing history that might be somewhat different from uh, some other colleagues. So... Uh, we have this constant uh, coming back and forth between uh, libraries and uh, and the field in China. We were um, studying together with uh, Christopher Schipper, uh, and uh, so we, we became good friends. But it took uh, several years before we uh, realized that. Um, we could do things together that uh, neither of us could do on his own. Uh, the context for that was uh, the late 90s and the early uh, 2000s when there was a major surge of interest for uh, the contemporary situation of religion in China and in the Chinese world after uh, the uh, uh, 99 Falun Gong events and also because of the uh, uh, sustained interest in the West for uh, what was going on in Chinese Christianity and especially, of course, the underground uh, Catholic Church and the, uh, and the Protestant house churches. Um, the Tibetan question, of course, the uh, Uyghur question as well. Um, so there was a sustained interest and demand for information from the media, uh, from the general public, and from colleagues from outside Chinese studies, and sometimes even within Chinese studies. Um, and we found it difficult uh, to answer this demand for uh, information and, uh, and analysis and contextualization because we didn't have a clear uh, overview of the religious situation in China at the time. Um, there were increasing numbers of young scholars uh, looking at the situation, either from a political or a, a low studies perspective or sociologists or anthropologists looking at looking at what was going on in the field. Uh, but most of those studies were focused on one particular uh, region or one particular area, one particular kind of issues, and there was no overview. And um, in order to um, both 
answer, I mean, meet the demand, uh, I mean, the requests of people in the media and also in diplomacy and other fields, and to help ourselves better understand what was going on, um, I came up with this idea to write a kind of short book uh, summarizing what we knew about the situation of uh, uh, religion in China and trying to explain it from an historical perspective. And um, I very quickly came to the conclusion that uh, that it was not something that one single person could write and we should uh, join forces. Uh, and But to write a book... Uh, I mean, fully write, co-author a book is, is something that is not common in our field. It might be common in other disciplines, but for historians or anthropologists, it's actually quite rare. And you need to be really good friends because you need to be able to criticize each other. And scholars don't uh, take criticism of their prose very easily. <laughs> <laughs> Some do, but many don't. Right? Um, so uh, you need to really build trust and uh, to be able to tell things to each other. Uh, but it worked wonderfully well with David because he's such a great, he's both a great scholar and a great person. And um, we, you know, we, we utterly uh, rewrote and changed things that the other had written. And that was okay because we trusted each other. And, and we, uh, we were sure that the results would be more than just the addition of the two. And that's... Uh, that's what we were hoping for, and that's what I hope we have achieved. And anyway, it was a really great experience. It's very different from writing your own book, right? It's uh, uh, finding things that you had no idea you could uh, uh, write or uh, or conceptualize. Or okay, yeah, you, you both have done a great job. So uh, yeah, thank you for your your contribution. What, what, one um, of the best compliments we had is that uh, people telling us. Uh, we had no way of finding out which chapters were David's and which chapter were Vincent's. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Now, you very consciously in the book don't employ religion as a, a thing that exists in itself. You, you talk mm -hmm. about it as a contested category, and that's actually what much of the book is doing, is demonstrating this, right. this dialogue. So, But could you uh, explain what you mean by the religious question, uh, since this does have an actual historical background to it, but also kind of a theoretical purpose for you? Mm -hmm. So I guess, right, at the, uh, the book, in a sense, started uh, as this question for us and as a question for scholars and so on. But um, um, in a sense, we could talk about this, this question or how it operates in China uh, at many levels. So um, when we talk about the, 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 the onset of um, Western modernity in China, so the first religious question appeared, which was really the religious question as it is understood. Uh, it's the European Enlightenment question of religion, which is how can we create a, uh, a progressive society which is not burdened by the uh, superstitious and anti-scientific dimensions of uh, religion. So for the European Enlightenment, that was the question of religion. And so that kind of question was imported into China uh, in the late 19th century and early 20th century. So in a sense, that's the first, that was the first question. A question that, in the sense, in Europe, apparently had been solved. But in China, um, that 
by importing this kind of question, uh, which involved a whole set of categories, it brought up uh, a second question, which was the question of how do these Western categories, um, interconnected categories such as religion, science, and superstition, so how do, what happens when you import these categories into China and you find that the way that culture is configured in China simply does not fit those categorizations. And so, so that generates a whole new set of questions, um, a whole new set of reconfigurations in the Chinese field, which um, uh, confuse uh, and um, mix up the original um, uh, science, superstition, religion uh, configuration. Um, and as we move into the, uh, into the middle of the 20th century, then on top of that question, a third religious question appeared, which was with the establishment of the People's Republic of China, was the question of the relationship between religion and um, a socialist regime, uh, the question for the Chinese state authorities and the Communist Party of the loyalty or disloyalty of religion to, um, to its regime. So that is the third religious question, in a sense, and one which in, in mainland China for the government is perhaps the key one, but it's really tied in with all the other religious questions. Um, and then, though, as we move beyond the, the revolutionary period and into the late uh, 20th century, the, the fourth religious question becomes... Um, and this is now we're really moving into what's going on in the whole world. The, the kind of the, the um, running out of steam of secularism, the uh, um, revivals of religion around the world, um, but revivals which do not follow the uh, tra traditional institutional configurations and traditional forms of religious authority. So um, religious revivals, which are at the same time highly fragmented and often characterized by uh, hyper-modern um, forms of networks and, and movements and so on. And so this is a new question, a religious question in the whole world, in, in a sense, is, what is how is religion organized and configured and what, is it, what are its connections with other um, components of society and culture? Um, in the in the modern or postmodern era, so to speak, and finally, the, the the fifth question is is the one into which we are uh, now entering with China's uh, growing influence uh, in the world is that um, so we have all of these questions which overlay each other, which in which in a sense add on to each other, and now China as a uh, one of the um, eventually becoming the or one of the most influential countries in the world, well, its religious configuration and religious questions become questions for the whole world. China exports religion to the world. Um, religious issues and controversies and conflicts which affect, which uh, touch on China, they, just by the nature of transnationalism and globalization, they inf impact on the whole world. And so... Um, uh, and so in a sense, um, China, um, also brings to the, brings to the whole world other configurations of the connection between the religious and the secular, which, um, may, 
uh, which will influence the, the religious configuration of the whole world. So in a sense, these are um, uh, a whole set of questions, one of which has led to the others and which have constantly made the whole uh, uh, socio-religious configuration ever more complicated. So kind of from a theoretical angle, um, you guys are very clear about not not trying to define religion for yourselves, but what you lay out is is what you call ecological approach. Um, and you talk about the social ecology of uh, the Chinese religious landscape. Can you can you kind of explain what you tried to do with this method and how this fits into kind of a modern Chinese society? Yeah, the uh, um, ecological approach um, is not like a strong theoretical framework that existed before we started writing this book. It's something that sort of came came naturally out of the process of our um, uh, writing first the part that we knew, knew about and then finding out all the black holes and the uh, and the, uh, the, uh, the the dark corners of the field and uh, aspect that nobody had ever written about and then we it still had to fill in somehow and we found that uh, all these many elements that we need to to put together like a jigsaw puzzle in order to, to get this uh, overview of the situation uh, made us realize that that's really, uh, I mean, the, the way uh, religious ideas and religious practices work in, Ch in modern Chinese society is a very complex system with ma many different elements uh, interacting with each other. And when we started to write about this, uh, ec ecological vocabulary sort of came naturally um, you know, like uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, dynamic equilibrium and 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 that and niche and that that kind of uh, uh, that kind of vocabulary came uh, came out uh, quite spontaneously. And when uh, looking at the first draft and and revising and writing introduction. We found out that that maybe that was the best way to account for um, what is basically an inherent pluralism, religious or ethical or moral or uh, uh, convictional pluralism that's proper to Chinese society that has been proper to Chinese society for a long, long time, and that further increased uh, during the modern period with the uh, uh, coming in of Western uh, traditions and Western ideas in the, Chinese, in the Chinese world that did not displace or replace pre-existing religious or ethical, philosophical uh, value system, but that added, further added to the complexity. Um, so I think this... Uh, it's idea that these systems uh, where many different elements coexist because they fill different functions within Chinese society, right? You, you have uh, Confucianism and Buddhism and Taoism and local cults and, and, and spirit position cults and then Christianity and then Islam and then atheism um, and then maybe civic religion and, and all those elements. They coexist 
and we have to and, and they interact with each other and we have to account for this pluralism for, for this uh, the coexistence of these different elements uh, because one of i think the the the, uh, the the ideas that are driving this book is that you need to see the whole thing in order to fully understand the specific elements within the field right? so we of course we made great use when writing the book of all the scholarship that has been written on Christianity, on Islam, on Buddhism, and, and so on and so forth. But I think we added something to this body of scholarship by putting all of this together within a framework. And, and that's true whether you look at the, the larger picture, China, or even if you look at smaller picture like one place, one local society. Well, I'm, I'm also working on Chinese religion in France at the moment. And it's basically the same thing. We use the same framework because even in a s smaller, it's not that small, but a smaller and a recent migrant Chinese community, like the Chinese community in Paris, there is an absolutely dazzling, fascinating pluralism of religious, moral, ethical uh, value system at work and they are competing to a certain extent but they are also coexisting you you see people being engaged in buddhist groups and Taoist groups and 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 sometimes in christian groups and sometimes in new religions and there is a coexistence there and a plurality and pluralism um that i think other theories such as the uh, rational choice theory don't fully uh, account for. And I think the ecological uh, framework that looks at the coexistence of these different elements within one complex system is better, uh, at least has better potential to uh, explain uh, both this pluralism, this coexistence, and the uh, evolution of a system that is never stable but al always evolves when one element grows bigger or tends to have negative effects on the other uh, related elements around it. So, uh, so maybe uh, using this uh, religious ecology uh, vocabulary in that book was a, a preliminary attempt to find a Chinese-informed model to talk about religious plurality uh, that hopefully will uh, be useful for studying other cultures and other areas in the future when it uh, grows into a more mature uh, theory. Now, uh, one of the major things you do in this book, which I think um, everyone studying religion will, will benefit from, um, is you, you really demonstrate how kind of the deployment of these categories um, and their consequences plays out. So could you give us uh, maybe kind of a bird's eye view of what the Chinese religious landscape looks like and then how some of those categories are being implemented, such as religion or superstition or science or others? So I, I guess it's helpful to look at this um, historically. If we look at the traditional Chinese socio-political configuration and cosmology. So we see a, an integrated system which is not characterized by a dualistic uh, dichotomy 
uh, between the spiritual and the material, the religious and the secular, in which all all social institutions, to some degree or another, were religious institutions. So the family, the traditional family in China, is a religious institution. Uh, The core of family life was ancestor worship. And so the core of a traditional Chinese home is a shrine, a shrine to ancestors. The cult to the ancestors um, is really the, the, uh, is the institutional structure of the traditional Chinese fam- family. So in that sense, the family is a religious institution. And this goes all the way up to the emperor, uh, the empire itself. Um, the emperor is the high priest uh, worshipping heaven. And um, the mandarins, uh, the magistrates, not only administer and dispense justice, but they're also um, ritual specialists. The Confucian examination system is one that involves also learning all about um, the, uh, the practice of how, how, does, how does one engage in the proper practice of ritual in order to maintain social order. And so um, no matter the, and we could go on and on, um, all social organizations in traditional China were religious organizations. And so what we see is a religious landscape where the religious and the secular in all social organizations in, in all social institutions is rather deeply enmeshed. And in fact, you can't really separate the religious and the secular at all. In the late 19th century and early 20th century, um, but of course, starting earlier than that, when missionaries come in, then we start to have a whole uh, intellectual and practical and eventually policy and political work starts to um, be set in motion in which there is an attempt to map the Chinese reality onto categories imported from the West. And so the basically Christianity appears as the paradigm of uh, a new category of religion, of zongjiao. So now um, an institution which is, um, has a strong self-identity, which is distinct from, the, from other social institutions. So this is Christianity, of course. This is not the essence of Christianity, but it's basically Christianity as it, the configuration of Christianity by the mid, by the, it's the 19th century Christ, uh, configuration of Christianity. So a church which has been um, um, functionally differentiated from other social institutions, um, and so in which religious life is clearly distinguished from secular life, and in which and which has its own institutions, which with its scriptures, its um, clergy, um, and its uh, 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 relatively uh, centralized organization. So when we try to when we then try to map that onto China, then what happens is that well there aren't that many Chinese religious uh, Chinese organizations that really fit that. Um, understanding that paradigm of religion. There are some that, that do to a certain degree. So basically monastic Buddhism seemed to fit pretty, pretty well. And, and well, that was about it. Um, and uh, everything else um, that was 
that, as I described, um, involved um, worshipping of ancestors, of deities, of heaven, but in a fashion that's completely integrated with other, um, with other social institutions. Well, that just didn't count. And, um, and that was just really... Um, it didn't count. It was not the noble religion equivalent to Christianity. And so that is just superstition. And, um, and so the, this, this kind of mapping led most people, in, including most Chinese intellectuals, uh, right from the early 20th century, to consider that there was no religion in China, uh, or hardly any religion in China. Um, and this is a perception that has continued um, almost, uh, which, which continues pretty much until today. So even though that you could, um, uh, according to all the historical evidence, if you walk down a street in a Chinese city in the early 20th century, the number of temples and shrines, the, absolute, the smoking incense all over the place, uh, surely was no less than what you would expect to find in India. Um, and according to Dean's work in some parts of Fujian, it is still very much like that. Uh, and yet these people who had, um, shrines and incense and earth gods under their feet, ancestral, uh, shrines in their own homes, temples at every city block, these intellectuals, they started writing that there's no religion in China. And that is simply because there was no religion that looked like Christianity. And so what they had, what they were seeing all around them was uh, an adopting the, um, adopting a view uh, coming from both Christianity and from secularism. So both contradictory currents coming in from the West. It led them to uh, label all of that uh, as a superstition. So this had no um, legitimacy and eventually under all forms of um, uh, basically throughout the 20th century, different, um, under all political regimes, the, the common practices of the people in all the different social institutions was delegitimized, banned, actively suppressed, campaigned against, and destroyed for, for, over, for, for about a century. And so to look at the contemporary landscape, so what do we see then? Well, we see that uh, in in spite of all of the campaigns of anti-superstition, which have tried to destroy temples and, and everything, and um, nonetheless, particularly in rural China, we, we see a, an astounding revival of a lot of the communal village, um, uh, traditional, what we call popular religion. Um, uh, and so this is uh, certainly not, not, not dead by far. And after... Um, many decades of active um, uh, suppression of this type of uh, religion now uh, owing to for a number of reasons uh, including nationalist reasons and just pragmatic reasons the the level of um, of hostility of intellectual and official hostility to this type of uh, religiosity has actually declined significantly. So the space for this is still open, but actually it is still not legal in mainland China. Um, um, and so around that, which is really the core of traditional Chinese religion, um, we have the um, 
uh, in mainland China, we have the five um, officially recognized religions. So those religions that kind of fit the paradigm. And so you have Roman Catholicism, Protestantism, Buddhism, uh, Islam, and Taoism. Taoism almost didn't make the, the that designation, but ultimately it did in its monastic form, which is really a minority, although perhaps more orthodox, uh, form of Taoism. So these, um, these five religions uh, in China have their state-sponsored um, official religious associations um, which try to manage and to control um, what goes on under the name of that religion in China. But actually outside of that, you have various degrees of unofficial and underground or unregistered Christians, Catholics, Protestants, Buddhists, um, Taoists, um, whatever you want. Um, so we have a, um, a certain level of the, of state sponsored and state controlled religion in China and a much larger realm of semi recognized, semi legal, um, what, uh, Feng Gangyang calls the gray market of, uh, of, uh, of religion in China, which is very, uh, which is vast, which is the, the greatest portion of of, uh, of religion in China. And in addition to, so these, um, what I just described as the, maybe what we now still find in rural China, especially, so the more, the, the more traditional popular religion, these five institutional religions, then we have in the cities all kinds of uh, um, modern forms of religiosity or modern combinations or reinventions of, of, uh, of different types of uh, of uh, religious and spiritual practices. So whether it was the Qigong, for example, there was a Qigong boom in the 1980s and 90s. That has abated. Um, however, there are other all, all kinds of other forms, whether various types of Buddhist study groups and Confucius scripture recitation movements, popularity of Tibetan Buddhism, um, growing Christianity, uh, feng shui, all kinds of different practices are um, are growing very fast in a highly individualistic, atomized um, urban configuration in China's cities. And they often, they really don't fit under any, many of these don't fit under any category. You begin, uh, you begin your kind of quest to figure out how social activity and social phenomena is classified within the Chinese uh, situation. Um, in 1898, can you tell us a little bit about 1898 and what's going on and wh why this is the, the start for your investigation? Okay, I think I'm, I'm fully responsible for this 19, <laughs> uh, 1898 uh, thing. Um, uh, more than David, even though I think I, I, I successfully sold the idea to David. Um, I, I came to the whole question of uh, religious change in uh, 20th century China um, I mean, from the perspective of a historian who's mostly been working on uh, 16th to 19th century history and when, when and that's what I'm still doing actually this this book is kind of a foray into a, I mean, really contemporary uh, history for, for me uh, a little bit away from my basis at times um, and from my uh, research experience on uh, late imperial 
China. It's up to the uh, late 19th or very early 20th century. Um, we, we have this clear vision of a country that is covered with temples. Um, so one estimate, and it's probably a very conservative estimate, is that uh, at the turn of the 20th century, we had basically one temple. And I say one temple, it's a very encompassing uh, category, in, including uh, Buddhist, Taoist, Confucian, and, and, and mostly lo- uh, temples, shrines to local gods and local saints. Right? It's a temple in the largest sense. Um, we had maybe one temple for 100 families, or for one, 400 people. Uh, so there were 400 million Chinese at the turn of the 20th century. So we had 1 million temples. And so we read sources from that, that period. We have temples absolutely everywhere in the tiniest, poorest, remote village. We have several temples. And when you go to China now, it depends very much on where you go, of course. Um, but in many places, you don't see temples anymore. So the question was, what happened to those temples? Um, and... Uh, the situation, I mean, the scholarly situation has changed a lot since I began to inquire into that question like 10 or 15 years ago, because at the time, uh, historians of modern China mostly um, considered that this was not a problem. I mean, China had to modernize, it, so it had to westernize, and so it had to do away with traditional values in traditional society in order to make way for a modern country you know, with its uh, educational uh, institutions and, 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 and state-building institutions like you know, uh, police posts and, 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 and so on and so forth. Um, so for most of those historians, the fact that the temple disappeared was just natural, right? They were turned into, you know, school or uh, past office or uh, army barracks and and, 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 and and whatnot. And that was considered a natural process, not an historical question. But when you read uh, historical sources from that period, you realize that um, transformation of temples into these uh, you know, schools and, and, and barracks and, and, and local administrations where was not natural at all and it was argued and fought and revolted and, um, and it was like actually uh, something that needed to be studied historically why some reformers choose to uh, turn temples into schools and, and, and why people resisted and uh, why in some cases that could be negotiated right? like sharing the temple uh, into one part for worship and one part for you know schooling the the, the, the local children, and why in other cases uh, this no agreement could be met and, and the, the uh, situation was solved by outright conflict and, and one party uh, winning over the other by mere force. Um, so uh, I try to understand that process and in order to understand what happens to this very religious society that I was studying for the uh, 19th century and what happened to it during the 20th century. And uh, so I wrote this, uh, this article um, like uh, more than 10 years ago uh, that argued that, of course, this was a process, but that a key turning point was 19... Uh, sorry, 1898, when the first uh, decree to turn 
transform all the temples in China into schools was enacted. Um, so there's, there's a whole uh, story behind that. I'm not going to go into, uh, into the story uh, in any detail now, but um, what happened is that uh, the uh, reform movement that had uh, pushed for this uh, law, this basically nationalization of temples law, uh, this movement uh, was uh, soon after uh, swept aside, but the idea was... Uh, um, uh, was not buried and it resurfaced just a few years later as in 1901 and it gradually gained the uh, ascent of most of the uh, the local elites so that it was uh, actually implemented and got into full swing by the republican regime so my argument was that we don't have an imperial regime that's conservative and religious that is replaced overnight in 1911 by a Republican regime that's lay and modern and secular and, and, and whatnot. And that the, um, the idea that China needed to turn its temples into uh, schools was already implemented during the, la the late uh, years of the imperial regime. And so that's why I, I chose this uh, 1898 movement as the, uh, the first turning point of this uh, history of modern Chinese secularism. But at the same time, I also wanted to suggest that uh, it was not natural for those uh, reformers that trying to implement, implement it. And uh, uh, when the uh, edict to turn uh, temples into school was uh, proclaimed on July 10th, uh, 1898, it was received in the newspapers at the time as a declaration of religious reform, uh, not just as a convenient way to uh, find uh, resources, I mean, money and space to build uh, the modern schools that uh, modern China needed. And it was uh, argued and resisted, and that uh, 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 still now, the question of how local society should be organized and whether it needs temples or not, and what's the place of worship and ritual in local society, it's still debated. And I mean, the question that was open then is not closed. Yeah, um, a large part of the book, you, you focus on these things that uh, people don't generally study uh, when they study religion. Um, so maybe you could talk a little bit about how these fit in um, so you talk about things that are classified as culture, um, things like martial arts and uh, Chinese medicine, and uh, what you know. His historically, if these things are not separated from what are at the time being classified as religion, uh, what for what purposes are they being classified? These other things, or how how does this kind of uh, play out in in sifting out what is what during the, the 20th century. Right. Yeah. I mean, people always ask, like, why are you talking about Chinese medicine here? Why are you talking about martial arts? Why are you talking about Confucianism? Uh, why are you talking about all these things? That's not religion. But that question itself, um, that's exactly the kind of question which leads to the, the divisions I, uh, that I was just talking about 
between um, not only the religious and the superstitious, but the religious and the cultural, the religious and the scientific, the religious and the medical, and so on. Um, if we look at something like, well, let's look at, for example, um, Chinese medicine and martial arts. Um, these two um, sets of practices are actually based on a, a single common cosmology. And the ontology at the root of Chinese medicine and of martial arts is really one that... Um, can only be described, if you wish, as metaphysical, um, uh, involves connecting with um, uh, Tao, um, the, uh, um, the invisible forces of the universe, qi, yin and yang, the five elements. Um, and so they involve connecting the body to and transforming the body according to an ontology which really is not at all, which cannot fit under um, mechanistic, materialistic, uh, materialist worldview. And uh, the martial arts, for example, um, involve a, a practice in which the body is aligned to a certain, to this uh, ontology. And uh, during the course of this alignment to uh, this ontology, there is not only a transformation of the body, but there's also a transformation of the mind and a transformation in, in the direction of virtue as well. So within the practice of martial arts itself, we have a complete integration of the body, of the mind, of the spirit, of the physical, and of the, of the, uh, of the metaphysical. It's all there, and it's completely inseparable. And so it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit nicely under religion, but it actually doesn't fit nicely under sports either. And that's why it has not yet been accepted as an Olympic sport. Um, Chinese medicine exactly exactly the same thing. So Chinese medicine doesn't fit nicely under the category of religion, but its status as a medical practice is still highly contested under the uh, under the um, criteria of uh, Western biomedicine. Again, because it's a completely, um, it completely integrates um, what by Western ontologies are uh, both physical and metaphysical um, uh, uh, dimensions of reality. And so what happens when these kinds of practices um, are then, when people come in with a conceptual framework coming from uh, a dualistic uh, Western um, uh, intellectual um, uh, background. So then now you have to define these things. And the definition of these things is not just an intellectual exercise. It really ha it, it is a policy issue. I mean, you have to regulate. Uh, medicine is something that the state regulates in all countries of the world. You have to license doctors. You have to uh, license medical training schools. So this is a practical policy question. So there are serious implications to how you define, um, how you categorize these practices. So, um, so what can you do, right? You have a, what is really an organically connected system of knowledge uh, and practice, and so what we see is some 
um, advocates of these, um, well, first of all, what we see is um, modernizing reformers wanting to throw these into the dustbin of history. So let's get rid of uh, our uh, superstitious medicine. Let's get rid of our superstitious martial arts. All of this is the cause of our weakness. All of this is what has me, what has led us to be unable to resist and to defend ourselves against Western imperialism. So let's throw it out. That's one of the um, well, that's one of the attitudes to this thing. It's just superstition. But then we have, have advocates of these traditions coming up, and they say, no, no, no. This is this is valuable. Um, it actually is good for the body. It's good for health. It's even better than what the West has to offer. So among the advocates then, then you have, in a sense, you, you always have two possibilities. Then you can either position this um, system of practices as a non-religion or as a religion, but you have to put it in one or the other. So the pressure is to, to, in order to save it, because it just it doesn't fit well under religion. So then you have the pressure to save these traditions, to categorize it as non-religion. And so a whole process is um, set in motion where you try to eliminate all of the, um, um, all of the non-materialist um, ontologies, um, cosmological uh, foundations of these practices, or hide them. You either eliminate them or hide them and you you uh, turn it in you you turn Chinese medicine or you turn the martial arts into something that is simply um, um, a uh, for example as herbal herbal medicines that can be researched for the molecular the properties of the herbs in order so that they can fit the basically become a branch of Western medicine, so to speak. Um, or you try to reconceptualize the, um, the cosmology of Chinese medicine to make it, um, uh, compatible with Marxist dialectical materialism, which, you know, yin yang can be said to be a primitive form of dialectical materialism. Um, so you basically redefine the whole, whole tradition in secular terms. Um, so you could do that with Chinese medicine, you do it with martial arts, you do it with the Qigong. But then what ends up happening, though, is that it's impossible to completely remove that core, that ontological core, which is something else. It's not, um, uh, it's really, it, it just doesn't fit in the, uh, um, uh, materialist or, or, or mechanistic uh, worldview. And so these things, they keep coming, they keep coming out again. They, they reappear at, um, uh, at un, 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 uh, unsuspected moments, though that, 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 uh, that ontological core reappears um, and the boundaries between the religious and the secular become blurred again. Um, so that's one of the options. And the other op- option is to do it the other way around, to turn it into religion. Um, we, we, in terms of Chinese medicine and martial arts, that option hasn't been, um, that hasn't been the most commonly chosen option, but we can see this divide very clearly in the case of Confucianism. So again, Confucianism completely, um, integrates the religious and the secular, but, um, now there are debates that rage on and on about whether Confucianism is a religion or is it not a religion. 
And the debate is really because uh, it's because of this conceptual, uh, this issue of this religious question, the question of categories. So right from the early 20th century, so you had those who wanted to turn Confucianism into a purely secular philosophy, and then you had those who wanted to turn Confucianism into a state religion, really modeled uh, along the lines of the Catholic or the of the Catholic Church. Um, so having Confucian Mass every Sunday and so on. So um, you, this divide is very clear in the case of Confucianism. Um, and, and it has become so total that there are scholars of Confucianism um, uh, who, who study Confucianism in philosophy departments of universities who have no idea that they're one of the largest religions in Taiwan, Iguandao, um, is, uh, one of the, is the, basically the largest promoter, the largest organized promoter of Confucianism uh, is uh, a highly religious organization where which worships deities, uh, which practices vegetarianism, um, which believes in miracles and apocalyptic prophecies. All of this is going on on a massive scale, and yet most scholars of Confucianism have no idea because they've learned that uh, Confucianism is just a secular philosophy. From the late 70s to today, um, you talk about the reconstruction of temple life. Can can you tell us about the factors that led to the resurgence in temple-based communal practices, how how temple-based practices shape contemporary identities? Um, There are a number of factors that vary very much from one place to the next. And even the extent of the temple reconstruction movement is extremely different. I mean, you you still have some uh, counties, in, especially in northern China, not, not only there, where the local uh, cadres and, and local uh, officials are still uh, very conservative in their views and um, do not allow for the reconstruction of temples, and you still have uh, uh, a landscape to, to follow on our ecological metaphor, uh, a local landscape where formal, visible religious institutions have almost no place, or just a couple of, of, of uh, uh, Buddhist or Taoist or Christian or Muslim places of worship that are affiliated with the official uh, Associations, but that, that's really very little. Um, but in in those cases, uh, you should not jump to the conclusion that there is no religion. There is a lot of religion going on, but it's usually underground, like house churches or other uh, uh, unofficial movements. And actually, some officials are, are, are coming now uh, uh, to recognize that um, maybe it's better to allow temples to reconstruct because temples tend to be um, willing to work with government um, as long as they are given enough you know, space to develop and do their own activities. They tend to be supportive of local government and to uh, collect money for and to help the government I mean, setting up charities and helping the poor and, 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 and so on and so forth. Um, and in some other parts of China... Uh, local governments are now very flexible and uh, pretty easily 
give authorization or at least tolerate the building or rebuilding of local temples. So the situation is extremely varied. And of course, uh, if you extend that to the Chinese world in general, I mean, if you include, and that's one of the things we try to achieve in that book, is to not just look at the People's Republic of China, which is, of course, the... the, the, the most important power of the Chinese world, but also taking into account uh, Taiwan and Hong Kong, Macau and Singapore and Chinese communities in Southeast Asia and in Europe and North America and now in Africa as well. And to look at the circulation of people, of ideas, of practices. Right? Um, so when you look at the, uh, the, the situation of temples, in those uh, different parts of the Chinese world, you realize that, and first, I said there is a huge and and, and fascinating diversity, uh, but also very strong resilience. You have places where temples have been destroyed as early, I mean, long before the communists ever appear on the scene. You have places where temples were destroyed in the 1910s, right? But uh, the resilience in the sense that people still remember how, where the temple was, what, how it looked like, what were the gods inside the temple like, uh, what were the festivals, who played what role in the festivals. And you, you have festivals that have not been organized since the 1920s or 30s and that resuscitate now. And when you have historical sources and you compare, you realize the people do pretty much as they were doing, as their grandparents were doing two generations ago, because uh, the local social memories has transmitted those religious practices. They, they still know how to, you know, perform in the temples, uh, perform like ritual theater and opera, perform the sacrifices, uh, what text to read, what text to, to chant or recite, and, 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 and so on and so forth. So there is a very strong memory, because these things do mean an awful lot to local people, because they are about their place in China's world, their place in the whole universe. They are about moral order. And the question of morality is central, because temples are also places that legitimate a local community, and where leaders can find um, their own legitimacy. And that's the reason why many of the temples that are being reconstructed now are not, even when they are not officially recognized or authorized, and that's the case for most of the temples that we can visit in China today, they are not authorized, but they are tolerated. But they are not civil society against the state. That's a major mistake that you might, that some people would, uh, when they are confronted confronted with that phenomenon, that they might do when thinking of Western models. You know, people, you know, they, they uh, disapprove of of state crackdown on a religious practice, and they reconstruct their own temple, even though the government does not allow them to. But that's not the case at all. It's not civil society against the state, because the the the, the managers, the leaders of the local temples, they are very often local cadres like retired party secretary because first these people have the uh, social networks and social know-how to organize, collect money, organize, get tacit authorization from higher authorities in order to get a temple going. 
and 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 festival uh, uh, and festivals going. And second, um, those active or retired uh, small local officials or cadres manage temples because temples embody a sense of common good. They are temples are there for the whole community's welfare, for praying the gods, for the welfare of the community, like good harvest, fair weather, uh, avoiding uh, disaster or pestilence. Uh, but also about maintaining um, cooperation between the different segments of local society because it's encompassing. And they are about honesty because uh, you can embezzle public money when you're, you're an official, but if you serve in a temple community and you embezzle temple money, then you run the risk of being punished by the gods. And the gods... Uh, uh, don't uh, uh, take that kind of behavior lightly, right? Uh, so there is a general social trust toward temples, and that's why uh, uh, some sociologists and, and, and political scientists have observed that people are much more willing to give money to temples, for temples to manage provision of public goods, than they are of paying tax money and entrusting a local government to provide the same kind of public goods. So these temples are still, as they have been for centuries, they are still about uh, the welfare of the public community and redistribution of resources. Even though um, I, we certainly don't want to say that things have not changed and the temples are exactly the same and play the same function as they have been doing for centuries, because they are also been major changes. I mean, the, the kind of local elites that were controlling temples in the 19th century don't exist anymore, right? So the social makeup of temple communities have changed, and also their economic basis. Temples used to own an awful lot of land and, and, and property. In many uh, parts of China, religious institutions controlled a very large proportion of the land, that's not the case anymore. I mean, land has been confiscated in the uh, 20th century, and it has not be give, uh, been given back. Right. So uh, temples have adapted. They have adapted the, the uh, social makeup of their uh, uh, leadership and, 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 and the community supporting them, and they have adapted to the new uh, capitalist economy. But they still embody these old ideas of common welfare and public good. Now, one of the, uh, the the kind of final issues you address in the book uh, is this issue of um, ethnicity, um, political allegiance, um, and I guess turmoil, right? So we think of Tibetan Buddhism, we think of Islam. Uh, could you talk a little bit about how this fits into the book and what, for what purposes you're talking about it? Right. Actually, right. The, the issue of ethnicity is uh, that's also a very interesting um, ingredient into this uh, into the mix. So China being a multi-ethnic, uh, having been a multi-ethnic empire, now a multi-ethnic people's republic, um, includes ethnic groups with different religious identities. And, and going back to this issue of the religious question, 
for most of the for some of these ethnic minorities uh, particularly um, in western China uh, or some of the largest borderland ethnic minorities so the Uyghur in uh, in Xinjiang uh, the Tibetans the Mongols the Dai uh, they all basically you have a correspondence between one ethnic group and one religion. So in a sense, there's no religious question there. It's an easily identifiable religion. It has a name. So the Uyghurs are Muslims, the Tibetans are, 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 are Tibetan Buddhist, uh, the Dai are Hinayana Buddhist. It's clear. One ethnic group has one religion, and that religion is um, uh, easily identifiable. It's a, one of the world religions. Um, so the issue of uh, identity, uh, the religious identity of ethnic groups, in a sense, is pretty straightforward according to a certain way of looking at things. But for the Han Chinese, the Han Chinese minority, again, going back to this issue of the religious question, it, that's not the way it works. There is not a, an easily, a single easily identifiable religious tradition which to which the entire Han population um, uh, identifies with, which is not to say that there's no religion there, but the religion is organically integrated to the entire to the entirety of social life. It is not a separate, um, separately identifiable single religious tradition. So, religious identity per se has not been an important part of the national identity of the Han Chinese. Now, the implications for this are that. While the, um, uh, as the majority ethnic group, um, trying to establish its uh, control over minority ethnic groups living in the borderland, highly strategic borderland areas, which cover more than half of China's um, uh, landmass, um, placating the religious identities and sensibilities of the ethnic minorities has been a very important part of uh, China's ethnic policy um, for a very long time. Now, so what we've had is a bifurcation here where while the Han Chinese were, the Han Chinese intellectuals and politicians were actively involved in campaigns to, compl to destroy their own religious heritage, However, in dealing with ethnic minorities, they, um, in a sense, they, they almost engage in the opposite policy, in, in um, um, affirming that an integral part of the um, identity of these ethnic minorities was their religion. And so... Um, um, the... I mean, this is something that is worth debating for, uh, I think, for scholars. To what extent this may have actually even reinforced the religious identity of some of the um, of some of the ethnic minorities uh, in in um, uh, in China. Um, so, for the um, uh, for the People's Republic of China, in many ways, the religious policy has largely been. Uh, um, uh, conflated with ethnic policy. How do we, um, how do we deal with the religious dimension of um, 
ethnic groups, um, ethnic identity. And so this has had both uh, positive and negative impacts on the, um, uh, on the, on, on certain ethnic groups in terms of uh, how they can live their religious life. So uh, I think a good case in point is a case of uh, Islam, um, where um, the argument could be made that in the case of the Hui Muslim minority, so the Hui are an ethnic minor are now defined as an ethnic minority in China, but basically they are China- Muslims who are largely um, outside of their Islamic culture are very similar to the Han Chinese. They speak like the Han. They look like the Han. Um, they are uh, off. They are also dispersed in, throughout China in different urban centers, um, and so uh, and very well integrated into the larger Han society. And um, so, for these people, the religion, the Islamic religion, has been uh, the main marker of ethnic identity, and. So for these people, practicing Islam has been politically understood as really practicing their ethnic customs. Um, and so there has been much more leeway for the, um, the practice of Islam by the Hui and some other minorities than there, is, than there has been for perhaps any other uh, religion in China. So in a sense, that has been very positive for the Hui in their uh, religious practice. But for the uh, Uyghurs, for example, uh, it might be the opposite situation, where there, um, Islam and uh, its transnational connections, uh, the, the assumed uh, connections between um, Islam and um, separatism have really led to uh, harsh um, restrictions on the practice of Islam by um, the Uyghurs. So I think that the, um, in terms of eth- ethnic groups in China, there's we really have a bifurcation with the Han in that in the the management and the identity construction of ethnic minorities, religion has always been a key part of that kind of construction. Uh, and that's and that's been a, uh, an element of the construction of ethnic minorities' identity, which has been actively, um, in a sense, um, the state itself has actively participated in that construction, but which is something that has definitely not been doing in terms of its own construction um, of the identity of the Han people. Now. Uh there's so much in this book that that we didn't we really didn't even scratch the surface, um, but one of the real strengths and of both of your research is the depth in sources that you guys have examined. I'm wondering if from that vantage point uh, you could give us give us a sense of what what you think uh, we should be doing in the study of Chinese religions. Uh, what directions can we go? What perhaps have we been doing too much? What have we not been doing enough? I think we have been trying to fill in this sort of jigsaw puzzle 
uh, trying to give a comprehensive picture of this field, uh, this very plural, diverse field of Chinese religion, um, we have found ourselves that there were questions that had not been uh, covered by scholarship so far. So in, in some cases, we've done some uh, research of our own in the, in the, in the sources, I mean, the published sources, archival sources, or doing fieldwork. Uh, but in, in, in many cases, we have just pointed at such a new uh, direction. Just one example, the question of a death ritual. Uh, of course, religion is uh, uh, to an important extent about managing death and mortality and, uh, you know, what uh, to do with uh, the dead and what do people become when they die and is their life after death. Um, but there's been surprisingly little research. There, there was some research, but not that much on uh, ideas of the afterlife and the care of the dead uh, during the uh, the twentieth century, so I think uh, we've we've tried to uh, I mean give some pointers here, but there's much more to be done in that uh, direction. Uh, and the related question is morality, the history of morality and moral values, um, and uh, and and yet another uh, related question is. Because the question of care of the dead and filial piety is a very strongly linked to morality, right? The idea of a good life and uh, the question of the retribution of the acts, right? When you do good, you're rewarded, uh, and you, when you uh, when you sin, you're punished for your sins. Um, I think we we don't have so far a very clear idea of the uh, evolution and transformation of those values uh, during the 20th century and how different uh, religious and moral authorities, including, of course, uh, uh, Christian churches and, and, and Muslim religious authorities and, and Buddhist and Taoist and Confucian leaderships, but also lay authorities, I mean, communists, uh, ideologues as moral authorities and the role of school education in the transformation of the value systems uh, and, uh, and 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 I mean, moral universes of uh, the Chinese people during the 20th century and up to the present. I think that's an important direction for uh, for new research. Yet another one. I mean, that there would be many more such uh, understudied areas that uh, appeared in the, in the process of our uh, writing of uh, overview, uh, but uh, I, I, w- I won't mention all of them, of course. Uh, uh, another one is the question of uh, the new production of knowledge. Um, up to the uh, 90s, the, the general idea was that uh, Religion was really pushed to the margin uh, under the effect of the 20th century uh, nationalist and then uh, communist uh, anti-religious and anti-superstition policies. But actually, uh, it appeared that this was not the case. And at the same time, a certain parts of the uh, religious landscape were uh, battered or uh, deeply transformed by those policies, a whole new series of religious movements sprung up 
uh, in some cases filling up the gaps opened by the uh, the destruction of the uh, anti-religious or anti-superstition policies, and that it was an, an incredible, an extremely, um, I mean, a very effervescent uh, wave of religious creativity uh, throughout the 20th century, and especially in two waves. The first one, and, and David uh, wrote about that both in the book and is in his uh, subs- uh, subsequent writings. Um, the first wave during the Republican period during the 1910s, 20s, and 30s, when a large numbers of new religious groups appeared and uh, uh, both recycled earlier ideas and ritual and practices and text and, and, and worldviews. Uh, but also introduced new elements. I mean, there, there was the, the, the production of religious text during that period is just staggering. I mean, in tens and tens of thousands of religious books, of new religious books, not just reprints of uh, earlier ones, were produced and printed and, and widely disseminated during this period. And this is something that has just barely begun to attract the attention of scholars. Uh, these books are not beginning to be available uh, through reprints or just because the uh, libraries that hold them uh, just uh, let scholars access those books. But now uh, there is a, a large uh, task for a new uh, generation or maybe several generations of scholars just to look at this production of knowledge and see um, how this writers that wanted to talk about religion, the place of religion in a, in a, in a modern China, what they had to say uh, during this uh, wave of, of the uh, first half of the 20th century, and, and what's the connection with the new wave that we are witnessing right now. Uh, again, uh, the whole Chinese world, People's Republic, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, Southeast Asia, Europe, North America, Africa, wherever. I mean, the, the, the Chinese world is encompassing the whole world nowadays. Uh, so throughout this Chinese world, there was a huge production of books, uh, CDs, uh, in- websites, and, and, and so on and so forth, with religious ideas circulating. And again, you, you need, even though it's uh, uh, getting more difficult by the day to, to to keep track of all of this and to get uh, to to uh, to have a, a, a larger a larger view an overview of this uh, fast expanding field, but um, uh, still uh, there is so much communication between different groups, different traditions, uh, ideas, concepts, practices, vocabularies, images are circulating uh, uh, all the time. Uh, throughout the world, crossing boundaries and geographical boundaries, political boundaries, confessional boundaries, and uh, this uh, uh, fantastic religious creativity that we are witnessing now is is both a product of our times, uh, but also a continuation of the earlier uh, phases of religious production. So there is a continuous uh, production of... uh, books and ideas that is uh, a whole field of study in itself. And I think there's uh, a lot to be done uh, there for uh, many young scholars. And uh, and last but not least, this 
product, Chinese production of religious knowledge is also increasingly impacting, affecting non-Chinese people. And we see that in the West. It's very, I think, visible here in France, but it's just uh, as much the case in, in North America or other parts of the world where um, Westerners uh, learn Chinese, uh, uh, Chinese, these texts and ideas are being translated into other languages. Uh, images don't necessarily uh, need translation. And uh, practices are being taught and disseminated in all kinds of uh, venues and all kinds of uh, transcultural ways. And so this uh, uh, production, uh, religious productivity um, of modern China is now uh, impacting the whole world. Well, I think that um, there's been a lot of very positive developments in the in the um, in the past uh, decade or so. Of course, the root of the study of Chinese religion uh, has been in Sinology, and I'm very happy about that. I think that um, the study of uh, religion in China should be well grounded in the study of Chinese history and civilization, and so that root is there. And I think it's important that that root and not be abandoned. Now there's been a, there is a move. Um, I mean, the good thing is that the study of contemporary religion using other disciplinary approaches and other methodologies is, is booming, but that sinological uh, route is there. And I think it should definitely be maintained. The collaboration, I would say the communications between uh, historians, anthropologists, and sociologists uh, have been very fruitful I think the the field, after all, it's not a huge field, and so I think most of the scholars in, who who work with different disciplines and methodologies know each other personally. They meet each other a lot, and overall, there's a very um, collegial um, there's a real very collegial atmosphere between the scholars who are who are coming from very different disciplines, and um, and I think our, our book reflects that. We've really, um, we've consciously tried to overcome uh, disciplinary boundaries and so to use, um, really to combine historical, anthropological, sociological, and even uh, political science um, approaches. But in a sense, I don't think we're totally unique either. I think that this cross-disciplinary um, uh, orientation is quite strong in uh, in the field of, uh, of, China, of uh, religion in China. And um, I hope that, of course, as the field continues to grow and different disciplinary approaches become more mature uh, and, so, and the number of scholars increases, I hope that that um, uh, cross-disciplinary intimacy doesn't um, dissipate. I hope that this kind of conversation uh, between historians, sociologists, and anthropologists continues. In terms of what is missing... Well, I think maybe there are two things. I think that now we have a lot of studies that are, in a sense, still um, focusing on more conventional understandings of uh, of the religious. So the number of there are large numbers of PhDs now, uh, I think, in progress that are either on various churches in China or popular religion. Uh, you know, temple religion or so on. And uh, there's a lot of that that's going on. But really, what about urban 
and religiosity. This is China is becoming an urb, a massively urban country, uh, and the complete it's a laboratory where anything goes. And um, uh, I think that more um, more studies of what is going on in uh, in, in in terms of the um, the hyper modern uh, inventions and reinventions of uh, of religion in, in urban settings i think still needs uh, still more work is needed and again this often really um, it, it, it transcends the boundaries between the religious and the non religious so whether you're looking at self help uh, you know success literature um, uh, themes in film, um, uh, the, the growth of psychology, um, uh, other forms of, uh, you know, the reconfigurations of Christian piety. I mean, there's just so much going on. And all of this is in flux. It's hard to define, and so it's not so easy to construct an object of research. But I think that there's a lot going on there that uh, could still be uh, researched. I think also is in the level of theory. I think the sociologists, and now speaking as an anthropologist, I think the sociologists have done a lot of great work in bridging the uh, bridging the gaps between sociological theory, or particularly three, the theory of the sociology of religion. Uh, so Western-derived theory of sociology of religion and the Chinese situation. More subtle understanding of how... Uh, Western-derived theories in the sociology of religion do apply in China, and very well sometimes, and don't apply in other cases. So I think there's a certain level of maturity there, which is which which is gradually um, uh, emerging, uh, helping to theorize what's going on in religion in China, uh, helping to put it into dialogue with what's going out on in the rest of the world. Um, and yet not falling into some simplistic um, universalisms. So I think that's been overall a, a good trend, although I think that the sociology of religion in general um, could really benefit from other theories outside of the sociology of religion. Sociology of religion seems to be trapped in uh, debates between, you know, the secularism, secularization hypothesis on the one hand and the religious market theory on the other. And actually, there's so many other uh, really interesting theories in sociology which could be uh, fruitfully applied to uh, religion in China. And so that's what's going on in sociology. In anthropology, uh, unfortunately, I think there's been far less of that dialogue between China and outside of China. There's been so much ethnographic work on uh, religion in China, um, but it really hasn't dialogued well with um, what's going on in anthropology outside of uh, outside of the China field. I mean, anthropologists tend to focus more on the local, but I th think there's also potentially um, a lot of work that could be done. I hope to help uh, contribute to that in in the future. Now, uh, many of our listeners will be excited to hear what kind of things you've been working on uh, in the, the years after the, the writing of this book and what, what kind of things you might be having coming out for us in the future. Well, I, I might disappoint some of the readers who are uh, mostly concerned with the contemporary situation in, in China and outside China. Uh, if I tell them that I have, to a, a large extent, um, retweeted to my 
uh, to my base, which is the uh, late imperial history. I'm, I'm mostly working on sixteenth uh, to 9th, late nineteenth century uh, sources now, and 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 uh, continuing my work on what I was mentioning earlier. That's uh, the religious, the role of religion in making a local society, and especially in in Jiangnan. But I'm still, uh, of course, very interested in contemporary development. I do uh, as much fieldwork as I can in this area and observing both the uh, long-standing place of uh, religious uh, rituals and practices in this local society and their uh, contemporary situation. So that's one thing. I mean, uh, trying to uh, keep the... uh, bring the story down to the present, but uh, um, and also to push it back further in time and look at the uh, longer, uh, deeper roots, uh, local society in Jiangnan and, and, the, and the way religion organize peoples and communities and institutions and, and social practices. So that's one thing. I've also been interested in the production of uh, moral norms uh, through a genre called morality books, Shanshu in Chinese, and uh, I've been translating some some of those books, mostly in French, but I've also some uh, projects to do translation in English as well. Um, and trying to uh, trace uh, the uh, history of uh, moral ideas and moral norms uh, through that kind of uh, textual production. Uh, again, uh, since the uh, at least the 16th uh, century, and, and in some cases uh, earlier on and down to the to the present. And I also have this uh, project I also mentioned on uh, with uh, some colleagues here uh, on uh, Chinese region in France. Uh, France is the uh, the largest country for Chinese migration in Europe, so we have a, a large community uh, and there was uh, new temples or uh, places of worship or religious communities being established uh, almost uh, by the day. Uh, so we um, it's also an occasion to do uh, fieldwork in China without having to fly <laughs> to China, <laughs> <laughs> taking the subway or the, or the bus or cycling around. Um, and so that, I think that's a, a, a new perspective and a new take on what is Chinese religion and what is the importance of religion in Chinese societies and, 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 and social organization and, and ideas of, uh, of community um, in the specific context of uh, migration. So um, right now, yeah, I, 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 there are just so many things I love. So I have too many things. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I have this kind of lineup of different projects in progress. And uh, well, I hope that at least one of them will, will soon see the light of, will, will soon come to fruition. I'm currently um, finishing up a book uh, um, with um, Elijah Siegler of the College of Charleston um, on it's called Dream Trippers Global Taoism and the Predicament of Modern Spirituality and this is a study of encounters between American Taoist practitioners and Chinese Trenzhen Taoist monks uh, at Huashan and th- so through an anthropological study of these encounters it really tries to reflect on the implications of the globalization of uh, of Taoism as China's uh, indigenous religion, globalization coming full term. So 
a westernized Taoism now coming back to China. So what what does that what are the implications of that? What 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 effects does that have? So that's one thing and and this leads us to a more broader question on what we call the predicament of modern spirituality, the um uh the the tension between um between traditional authority and the precariousness of a completely self-centered uh, indi- spiritual individualism. Um, so that's what we're we're working. That's a uh, that's going to be a really f- fun book. Um, uh, very different from the religious question in modern China. Uh, very ethnographic. A lot of thick description. A lot of funny stories. Um, you know, imagine all these New Agers, uh, angel channelers, peyote smokers. Which is uh, uh, how could you lose, right, with that crew? Oh, and see what happens when they meet with with, with hermits, um, uh, uh, monks uh, in um, in uh, in a powerful mountain. Um, so uh, yeah, we're writing that. I have a the next project that um, I've started working on. Uh, a little more than a year ago with uh, really with the social science faculty of the university of Hong Kong, uh, more of a, what we call at Hong Kong, you knowledge exchange. It's um, how do you bring the knowledge of the university in, ex- how, how do you communicate or collaborate with the broader society? And, and in this case it's with the third sector. So I have a project called spiritual values in the third sector um, and where we're working with some uh, faith-based NGOs in Hong Kong and looking how they apply their um, their spiritual, um, their religious and spiritual values, and the type of uh, social action that they conduct in, in in the community, and what is it that how are they different, or are I mean, are they different, and what is it that gives them that extra uh, capacity or extra uh, empowerment or extra spiritual capital? As as we're also looking at this concept um in 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 what they do uh in the community and in society so we're looking at primarily some uh, christian and buddhist groups and we're we're um and we're trying to devise models um uh from the from their experiences which will then be used in training of ngo leaders um so that's in a sense a more practical or or applied project. I'm I'm still don't know exactly where it's leading, but it's been very interesting so far. And I also have a project um, which is more in classical ethnography and anthropology of a ritual tradition in northern Guangdong province, which combines um, um, Lushan Taoist and Xianghua Buddhist uh, ritual traditions, and it's going back to uh, right, the ethnography of traditional religion in Chinese villages, and I guess what I hope to do with that is really engage with some of the newer um, uh, developments in um, uh, in anthropological theory and see how we can really bring the Chinese material on Chinese, uh, the ethnography of Chinese religion, really bring that into the, uh, into the dis- theoretical discussions in anthropology. Great. Well, we look forward to, uh, to to seeing more of those. And thanks, thanks again for joining us and giving us some of your time. Yeah, thank you very much, Christian. You've been listening to New Books in Religion. That was my conversation with Vincent Gousser and David Palmer about the religious question in modern China, 
published with University of Chicago Press in 2011. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.